Hi, it's Steve Albrecht, and welcome to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. I am the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. My topic for this half hour is kind of a lighter touch, some things I saw on Twitter that came from library people that made me laugh that connect to how we choose and select people to work in libraries and the demands and the especially educational demands that we make on people who apply to work at the library. So let's take a look at our hiring practices, what we do, what we could maybe do differently, how we select, how we choose people for the library service, and how maybe perhaps there are so many barriers to entry in some library jobs that we're making it difficult to get good people. Let's focus on that as we look at this podcast. I follow a lot of creative and clever people in the library world on Twitter. One of them is Lousy Librarian, at Lousy Librarian on Twitter. And one of the tweets from a couple of weeks ago made me laugh. Apply to work at our library, exclamation point. We look for dynamic, creative, imaginative, independent-minded, credentialed professionals who want to work in an environment where we tell you exactly what to do and exactly how to do it. That one makes me laugh because... The sarcasm is intentional, but the point is really clear, isn't it? We have bright people that we hire, and not just in libraries, but lots of organizations where we have a high expectation of their credentials, their experience, their education, their work knowledge, and then we treat them like children in the work environment. We treat them poorly, so much so that they leave sometimes, and the old adage about you don't quit your job, you quit your boss happens not only in libraries, but in lots of organizations, especially in government, as I have seen in my career uh, going forward. So what is it about the library world where we have so many demands that we make on people that apply? Uh, a master's in library science, for example, lots of experience working in libraries, lots of experience working with the public and the public sector and with patrons and customers, and then we treat them like children sometimes in that environment. Or that we don't pay them well. We don't pay them connect connected or commensurate with their experience, their work experience. And this is a an issue I see in my daughter's world as well. She works in TV news. My daughter has a four-year degree in film and TV news and film and TV and video, <clears throat> and she's been doing these things for, for many years, and yet she works for a TV station where she's not very well paid because the perception is, and you know this from your observation of Hollywood and TV in general, which is the people in the front of the camera, the pretty ones, uh, the ones who act or read the news, um, are the ones that are well paid. And so one of my colleagues years ago said, what do we value in this organization? What do we value in our country? What do we value in our work? Is it education or is it ability to entertain? Well, in most, uh, in most platforms where entertainment is the requirement, we value entertainment value more than we do the educational value, which is sort of odd, right? So the Kardashians are, many of them are billionaires or near billionaires, school teachers, library people, not so much. So that tweet from Lazy Librarian made me think about how we select and train and bring library people into our business world and are we need to, does, is it time to change some of the dynamics about how that happens? The other tweet from Twitter from a library person made me laugh. Also, this comes from somebody named Moni, M-O-N-I Barrett, B-A-R-R-E-T-T-E. -T -T -E uh, the, the Twitter handle is Moni, M-O-I Bear, B-A-R-R-E. And this person posts, librarian jobs be like trained in mental health and social work, safety officer background, book genre specialty, be comfortable with politics, business minded, customer service skills, masters required, 
student debt desirable, $40,000 per year salary. It makes me laugh because some of you are going, yep, 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 check the box there, check the box there, check the box for my particular organization. Um, I tweeted this out and some other people put in, able to speak two languages at least, able to lift 50 pounds over your head. Uh, PC and um, uh, software knowledge also uh, desired. And so it makes me laugh when I see people take shots at the hiring process. But then again, let's be real. These are talking about people's careers and lives and livelihoods and things like that. Are we making it too difficult to hire qualified library people in the library environment? First off, let's talk about the requirement for having a, a master's in library science, uh, M-I-L-S or, or M-L-S, depending on where you come from, or M-L-I-S, depending on where you come from. Is a master's necessary for most library jobs? The answer would probably be no. It's certainly necessary for a certain research, genealogy, cataloging, really highly specific jobs where, where those requirements and skills are, are required. But do we see, and this is a question I ask as a non-library guy looking at the library world for these 22 years that I've been doing it, have we created an environment in the library in terms of hiring people with a requirement for a master's in library science the way we do for social workers, which is social working as a profession is, is darn tough. And I know many social workers, and it is a challenging profession to say the least, but it also requires an expensive degree, an expensive master's degree for people that have a master's in social work or a, are LCSWs, licensed clinical social workers. It is a difficult, challenging process to get through the educational experience, expensive as well, and to get through the uh, licensing process to become a licensed clinical social worker. So I see lots of folks that I know that are social workers in my experience, both in California and out here in Missouri, that have an expensive degree but don't get paid commiserately for what they do. So they work for a government county, a very small county sometimes out here in Missouri, where they may make $25,000, $30,000 a year and have $150,000 in debt that they required to get this degree. Now, is it a requirement to have a degree in social work or master's in social work to be a social worker? I don't know. In most places, the answer is yes. I don't know because I'm not intimately involved in that world to say what requires a, a master's in social work and what doesn't in terms of the job descriptions and duties. But can we draw the parallel between library people and social workers that say expensive degree, hard to get, a lot of barriers to entry to get into graduate school and to get through the graduate school process without taking on a bunch of loans and spending lots of money and then coming out into a job market or a job field where you are not paid very well for what you do. You can look at Another parallel is kind of the legal profession, certainly medical profession for sure, but the legal profession where the barriers to entry to get into a law school are quite, quite extreme. It's tough to get into law school. I got into law school barely uh, back in the time when I thought I wanted to be a prosecutor. Then I realized all the other stuff I had to study besides criminal law, and I said, I can't do that. I'm not smart enough. Who wanted to do torts and probate and insurance law and tax law during law school? I don't think I could have done that. So when you look at the barriers to get into law school, it's... Um, a four-year college degree, it's taking the LSATs, it's scoring high enough on the LSATs uh, to be able to get into a, a decent law school, spending two years in going full-time or maybe three or four years going full or part-time to law school to get a law degree and then coming out and taking the bar. Now, I remember in, in um, California how challenging the bar was. It's a multi-day exam, and I knew lots of people who were really smart folks who did well in law school and didn't pass it on the first go-around. 
Lots of examples of famous people like John Kennedy Jr. that didn't pass the bar exam in the first go around either. It's not an easy test in any state. So we look at, at you know, kind of from an outsider's perspective, we look at some of the barriers to entry that certain professions create. Medical school would be one. Uh, we, we want doctors to be competent and pass their medical boards for sure. Um, but also law school and, and passing the bar is a way to keep the profession not so overfilled with lawyers, even though there are lots of lawyers out there anyway. Another parallel would be CPAs. Uh, the certified um, um, uh, I mean, accounting degree for those certified professionals that come out of, out of school with an accounting degree and take the accounting test, the CPA um, test, is challenging. And again, it is a multi-day test as well in several parts. And you could even look at being a stockbroker. We have to take the Series 7 examination to become a stockbroker, a full-fledged uh, stockbroker is also challenging as well. Now, sometimes those... Uh, you know, like certified public accountants, Schedule 7, um, a Series 7 um, stockbroker test, those things exist to keep the population of those types of professions down and to raise the skill level necessary to get in and to help these people that are in those professions already charge high fees for what they do, their expertise. I get all that. But are we in the library world creating the same type of environment by requiring masters in library science uh, to employees that just want to work in the library. And so the other part I get is the, is the discussion about salary. And, and in this country where we look at, in the current time that I'm recording this, we look at the unemployment rates where people are, are begging for jobs uh, in certain areas and other places where the employers are begging for applicants. And do we have a, a, an opportunity to bring people from outside fields who had not worked in the library before into the library experience in the library environment? What is it that we're looking for when we hire library people? And the, and the skill set is pretty broad. I mean, it's more than what, what uh, Moni Barrett said here in, in the tweet, but there are a lot of things that are connected to good customer service skills, good organizational skills, reliability, being able to show up on time, dealing with difficult people, challenging people, eccentric people, over the phone, face-to-face, -face, over the counter, out on the stacks, et cetera. When you look at, at the librarian jobs that are posted, the ones that I see, a lot of them, where the requirements are that you live in an expensive city. I mean, imagine working as a librarian in San Francisco or Los Angeles or New York or, or Chicago or another expensive city where it's, the cost of living is quite high to live there. It's one thing to work in a rural or small community and commute to a perhaps a, a, a larger size city. You know, you're living in a rural community and commuting to a larger city where you can afford it. Or there's other ones where you have to live in those cities where it is still pretty expensive to do. And that leads to sort of uh, to another pet peeve, which I see occasionally uh, brought up in human resources conversations on Twitter and in my human resources discussion groups. I belong to SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. We talk about this in, in the SHRM discussions, which is, is it a requirement these days? Should it be a requirement these days? Is it being legal and fair and ethical and, and humane to people who are applying for jobs to know what the salary range is? So you look at lots of jobs that are out there now, and they say salary is TBD, to be discussed, to be determined, or salary based on, on connected to experience, and you say, well, I have lots of experience. I'd like to start at the highest level salary possible in the steps that you have created for this particular position, but you may not even know what those steps are, or you may not know because they have not posted the salary. So there's a, a, a pretty big discussion on LinkedIn and on Twitter amongst my HR colleagues about the idea that, that organizations have a duty to post, especially in these times, 
post the salary for the job that people are applying for so that you can say, yes, I can live on that in the, in the city where you're asking me to work or the city where I am, or no, I can't. And you think about the stress, the, the process, the work that you have to do from the, the application stage, the submitting of your resume, that you have your resume polished up so that it, the artificial intelligence machines go through and, and pluck out the keywords and make it easier to, to land you for an interview. You look at, at how challenging it is to gear up for an interview process that you may have to do online on Zoom because we're not doing them face-to-face -face anymore, where you're meeting with an HR professional or somebody who's, who's, who's a lower-level HR person who takes your information and gives it to the hiring deciders, the people that make the hiring decisions in the organization, or you're sitting on a, on a Zoom call with a panel. There's many people there watching you, sitting there at home or, or sitting there someplace where you have access to Zoom, and you're stressed out about the experience and you're trying to give your, your best answers and put your best foot forward to get the job, and then you discover that the job doesn't pay, if they offered it to you, what you need. And so how challenging is that to gear up for the stress and uh, preparation necessary for the interview process only to find out that your work was in vain and that they did not, won't be able to, did not post the salary and won't be able to give you the salary that you require to be able to do that type of work in that type of city. The cost of living in some cities, when you look at downtown library, where you've got parking charges, where you've got issues where employees may not be able to drive into the city, don't have a car, or the subway and, and bus and transit systems are unreliable, and folks have a real struggle to get from areas where they live where it's cheaper to live into the city where they work. This is common in California, I've seen many times. Chicago, for example, as well, too, where people live in the suburbs or, or out quite a distance and commute into cities like San Francisco or Los Angeles or even in San Diego, where I'm from. Uh, in Chicago, they live in the suburbs and, and commute to downtown. It's quite a hassle. And so you say to the people that are coming in, you know, do we have any flexibility for our employees about park parking costs and, and being able to provide uh, benefits beyond just you know, here's your job and here's your paycheck. I mean, do we have a van pool? Do we have, you know, discounts on Uber or Lyft or things like that so folks can get to work? And I think about just the, the commuting time and the commuting costs for people that are coming from a distance to go work at a, at a downtown library, for example. So a couple things sort of pop into my head. One is how are we looking at our hiring practices, the way that we bring people into our library world, as being fair and ethical and diverse and, and realistic and balanced in terms of the salary for the, the educational requirements and the job duties and things like that. And when we look at the totality of the, the hiring process, are we, especially I'm asking of library leaders who are listening to me, are you really comfortable with your library's hiring process is one and also practice is another. So the hiring process is one thought, thought of discussion for your library and the other is the hiring practices. So the hiring process, is it, is it fair? Is there, are we getting the quality applicants and quality final positions for people that we're, we're offering positions? So are we getting the quality we look for? And what is the time span necessary for somebody to start at the application process when the job is posted, typically online, to when they get the job? I'm, I'm thinking of jobs in government sometimes where there could be a three-month, six-month hiring process where you have to go through panel interviews and background checks and uh, some, some organizations require drug screens and medical tests and things like that that you have to take before you can get the job. Now, it may not be necessary in the library, but I think of 
of certain jobs in government where there's a long, long process. The barriers to entry are typically created by the calendar, and so sometimes the best qualified people don't want to apply just because they say, I need a job now. I can't wait three months to be hired. I'm not saying we rush the process. I'm not saying we skip steps. I'm not saying we just select people willy-nilly and put them in the library. I think we have to be, be uh, cognizant of how much due diligence we need to do, but are we creating, uh, have we created a bureaucracy which creates a waiting period for the people that are applying for jobs that's not palatable for them? They just can't do it. The second set is the, the practices. Are we fair? Are we legal? Are we diverse? And as we look at the hiring practices in your library, and maybe this is a function that you have or you do it in, in, in connection and cooperation with an HR department or an HR member, HR manager, HR director that's connected to your library as, as a standalone department, not, not necessarily created for your city or county to hire, but as a standalone entity inside your library itself, have you sat down with this person and talked to HR and said, how are the job descriptions for our job that we're that we're, we're posting. How are the job descriptions and job duties? Are they are they recent? Are they reasonable? Are they up to date? When was the last time? And this is an important question. When was the last time we did a salary survey? When was the last time we did a job classification survey? And if we have steps, and those of you that work in a union environment know what I'm talking about, especially in government as well. We have step levels. You know, do we have the appropriate number of steps? You know, is there six steps to this position when there only should be three? Is there a library tech one, a library tech two, and a library tech three, or do we go up to you know library tech 17? Have we done a salary survey across our state, across our city, across multi-states around us, across the country to say, are we within range for the salaries that, that we're offering to be reasonable and to get a, a candidate pool that's gonna work for those, those salaries? And so, you know, if I was to think about another in industry where there's a constant complaint about the level of quality that we get from the people we hire. It's the security guard industry, a, a place where I have done a lot of consulting work, is we're always complaining to each other about you know, poor quality security guards in our facilities, poor so quality security guards at our malls or shopping centers or other locations. And then we say, well, what, are these, what do we pay these people? And the answer is we pay them just above minimum wage or sometimes minimum wage. And even you looked at armed security positions where this person's carrying a firearm and they're, they're making $2 an hour more than somebody who is not armed. And so there has been a constant battle. And this goes back to my grad school days in 96, 95, 96, when I was going through my master's program in security management. We were doing case study work even back then about this idea that we can't get good people in the security guard industry because we're not paying them well. And then the vicious circle flips over and says, well, we can't pay them very much because the clients won't won't accept higher salary costs for the posts that we're putting these people into. So we're, we're stuck in this loop. Clients demand somebody who's got Navy SEAL background who can leap out of a parachute and, and knows first aid and, and can do this, this, and this, but they're only willing to pay just above minimum wage for those people. We're not going to get them. So that, that conflict between low salary and difficulty of, of, of having the right people, of choosing people that are good for the security job position is, is the same in other, other jobs as well. So I'm not saying that we have to have an above the board, across, you know, across the board, above the line salary increase for everybody in the library world, although they'd love it. But sometimes we have to look and say, have we done a salary survey? Have we done a job classification? Have we looked at the job duties and requirements for these particular positions? And are they fair and ethical and legal and current with what's going on in the modern era today? If not, 
then that's the time to make these changes now and say, we need to bring our hiring standards up to speed. We need to have HR look at the way we do our hiring. We need to look at how HR does the hiring on our behalf. If we need to bring in our city attorney or county counsel or town attorney or, or an HR labor law specialist attorney who can look at the, some of the things that we do in terms of our applications and our resume review and our hiring practices and our interview practices and how we screen people and things like that to make sure that we're current and legal and fair, then this is the time to do it. I'm kind of reminded of the old days where you would still see on some job applications, you have to be able to type 50 words a minute. I mean, and this is even in the, in the post-computer area. You say, well, why would that still be in there? Well, we want our people on the keyboard to be able to type 50 words a minute. Has that ever been a requirement that's been necessary for any library position that you type really fast? How about you say, I want somebody who types really accurately and correctly and doesn't make mistakes on behalf of the patron and doesn't make mistakes when sending around correspondence and reports and memos and and uh, projects and things like that. How about that requirement instead of saying be able to type 50 words a minute? Speaking of 50, is it a requirement that people are, can lift 50 pounds of books over their head? I mean, is that a demonstration that, that has to be made in the, in the job process where you say, okay, if this person's working in a library warehouse, maybe it is a necessity. But if this person's working on the floor where it is not a necessity, in which case, you know, have we made reasonable accommodation through the Americans with Disabilities Act for people that can't lift 50 pounds over their head, but we've created uh, a mechanical systems or a process for them to use devices or equipment or things like that to be able to do that successfully and safely. So I look sometimes at the job descriptions and I just wonder if, if we need a pass through them to tighten them up, uh, a pass through them to bring to the modern era. Again, a conversation to have with your HR colleagues and say, are we matching the job duties and job requirements to the proper jobs? And are we, and this is the important part, are we hiring to those characteristics? Are we looking at people in the interview process and the resume screening process and hiring to those characteristics, in which case that they're, they're valid and necessary for these jobs, then continue. If they're not, then they need to be removed or, or improved. Long ago in the hiring discussions I had with a colleague in HR, this person said, given our choice between experience over enthusiasm, I'm going to choose enthusiasm many times over experience. And, and the reason is not that we're devaluing experience, especially in the library world, but sometimes we look at people who, who just at, reach a point in their career where they mail it in, they don't have much enthusiasm anymore for the job, they're burnt out of public contact, of high human contact jobs, they're burnt out with dealing with the patrons. I'm not saying we exclude them based on age, that's illegal. But sometimes you look at enthusiasm and you say, here's a person who's been in the library world 20 years who has just as much enthusiasm as somebody who's been in the library world for you know, two months. But oftentimes we look at situations where someone comes in and applies for a job and says, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't mind dealing with the patron. You know, they're, they're, that's fine. I can do it as part of this job. As opposed to somebody who comes in and says, you know, I don't have a lot of experience working in the library, but I love books. I love research. I love genealogy. I love referring things to my friends that are DVDs and great programs. I'm a gamer. I love, I love talking with people about video games. I mean, any of those kinds of characteristics where you say, wow, this person has a lot of enthusiasm, but not necessarily experience. When I look at entry-level jobs where they don't need a master's degree in library science and they don't need a, a, a college degree to, to apply for the job, but they may be young or have come out of another career where their, their enthusiasm is, is demonstrated. Their enthusiasm shows up in the interview process. And you go, you know what? This person is less likely to be burnt out. This person is less likely to be mailing it in. This person is less likely to, to just not want to show up one day because they're tired of library life. 
because they're enthusiastic and they have this sense of, of wanting to help people and wanting to help our patients, I'll take a risk and hire them, even though they may not have the experience that I'm looking for. So this is not to say that I'm devaluing experience. This is not to say that I'm, I'm saying that, that work experience and job experience and, and, and time and grade and years of experience is not necessary. Uh, it certainly is in certain jobs. And also when I look at the skill level where we say, sometimes if I have my choice between somebody who's not that enthusiastic but lots of experience versus someone who's very enthusiastic but not much experience, I might take the risk on the person who has enthusiasm. And I guess it goes back to the idea, and I've learned this in my customer service days, is that you can train people to do the work. You can train people to operate the software and the internet and the, our in, internal software systems, and we can instruct them on our policies and procedures, but you can't make them like people. You can't make them enthusiastic in dealing with people. You can't make them want to come to work and, and be excited about the work they do. That's built in. That's inherent in what's going on inside of them. As we look at the educational experiences and the educational requirements that these people that have had the educational experiences for the master's in library science or library degrees, things like that, <clears throat> that we are bringing into the organization, we have to be careful that we're not being discriminatory towards people that cannot afford that college experience and, and have maybe come up through the ranks in the library world but don't have a degree. I know lots of people that work in public government who were not able, not necessarily library, but who were not able to promote, could not promote in their positions, could not get to the next step level because they didn't have a college degree. Did that mean they weren't good at their jobs? Of course not, but the, the barriers for entry by saying we, we require, it is a requirement of a college degree for this particular position. Again, I go back to the idea, is it, is it necessary or mandatory or is this archaic thinking that, that can be eliminated and said, we want the best person for this job and if that person happens to have a college degree, that's great, if not, we're still gonna look at their overall fit for the job and the things that they do on our behalf that are gonna be a great fit for our patrons and put that person into the next position even if they don't have that, that college degree. And I guess the last thing I wanted to think about or for you to think about is the idea of how we use existing people in our library system to get us more good people. And so this is a, a referral discussion, a, a referral thought process. Are we rewarding our employees, and I'm talking about gas cards and Amazon cards and cash gifts and days off and things like that. When I worked for the city of San Diego, if you, if you recommended an employee and they got through the hiring process, they gave you a discretionary day off. And so that's, that's pretty pretty good incentive right there. Are we making it valuable for our employees, especially our employees that we have a, in a diverse community, go out into that community and, and bring people of color and other, other people into our library world, women, uh, people of, of transgender, things like that, bringing them into our library world because they are in that environment themselves and they have the opportunity to talk up the, the library, talk up the, the fun and the good work that they do at the library, meaning we have created a, an employee referral system that's connected to bringing us good applicants all the time. And so you say to your folks, hey, you know, we've got a job posting here, talk it up amongst your, your peers, talk it up online, talk it up amongst patrons. Maybe some of the, the best library employees are people that, that want to work in the library who have frequented the library for, for decades. Think about how sometimes we get our good seniors our retired, retired folks that want to come in for a full-time or a part-time job in the library because they've been coming to the library for all this time. 
think about the referral process in your local colleges where you have a cross-referral. You refer potential students to the library programs, and they refer students and or graduates to you from their library programs. So you've got a, a cross-referral system going on with the educational uh, entities in your community. And you say, okay, we get good people because we have our eyes peeled for those people coming out of library programs, and vice versa, we've got a good relationship with feeding these schools with good candidates for library certification or library degree programs. So it's a, a cross-referral benefits to both sides. I think a lot about the referral process because how do you get, get a meet, meet a future husband or, spou or spouse, right, husband or wife? You say, how did I meet my, my partner, my spouse? How did I end up with this person who I've spent many of my years with? It probably wasn't at a bar. Maybe it was through online, but for older, older couples, older people, it tend, tends to be through two areas. One is you met them through some version of your work, or you met them, this is probably more likely and, and certainly connects to me, through friends of a friend. So talking with your friends about your single status and wanting to be with somebody leads them to think of somebody for you and vice versa. You, you do the same for them, for your friends, right, that are, that are single. And you look and you say, our closest connections to people come from the people that we're around all the time for good advice. And so whether it's a spouse or a plumber and you say, well, who's, who's the best plumber in town? You go, I use this guy. He's great. It's different than going to the Google or just sort of stabbing around online to try to find a plumber instead of saying to somebody, I will talk to this person who has already experienced this and had good success, I'll use that referral. It's the same as in work and many of our work relationships where we started off with, with wanting to get into a career field, we started talking to people who are already in that career field and could give us good advice and could refer us to those types of entities that were hiring for people like us that wanted to get into that type of work, rather than just saying, I'm just going to submit my resume and hope for the best, we had an in. We had somebody who could get us in the door. And I always talk to people when I do executive coaching or employee coaching or coaching for people in career changes or movements, that it's the function of, of your resume is not to get a job. The function of your resume is to get an interview. And the function of the interview is is to make it most likely that you will be the person that this organization chooses by being not only successful during the interview process, but helping them future pace and seeing you as being successful in the job itself going forward. So think about how we select and, and, and collect the best applications, resumes, and people, applicants for library jobs. It's going to start from our own team members, our own colleagues, our own cross-referencing of their, their uh, conversations they have with their friends outside the library world to bring them in. How do we reward people for that process? How do we thank them for when they do it and that person comes on board and is a successful employee with us? So think about this reward process for good recruiting services that our employees do for us on our behalf, bringing in people that are good for the job. And if you look at sort of a, a realistic connection, if we are hiring people that are, are friends with each other and colleagues with each other and, and paraprofessionals with each other, know each other from various and sundry interactions, whether they meet at conferences or church or at some other job-related thing, then, then we know that there's a little bit of a possibility that they already get along and that there's less likely to have conflict 
and that they're more likely to be happy and successful in that job if they're working in a place where they feel respected and connected to people already on their first day. So thanks for listening. My thanks to the producer of the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargadon. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. Thanks for listening to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast.